Good morning. As John said, my name is Bonnie, and it is an honor and a pleasure for me to be able to stand up here again and to represent the teaching team and to deliver a message this morning. If you're new to Grace, our teachings on Sunday mornings are cultivated from a lot of dedicated time and thoughts from several different minds and different perspectives and then entrusted to a member of the teaching team to deliver that message. And it is a really beautiful model um, that I have so much respect and appreciation for. So if you ever have an opportunity to attend a teaching team meeting, I really encourage you to do that. Um, If you'll take some more time to pray with me, then we can get into the scripture. Heavenly Father, we are here together today in your presence. We know that you have a plan, and we see in your word that your plan is good. We gather as a body of believers who know you and as those who want to know you more. We recognize the need for faith and belief, and we pray for those things so that we can continue to minister your word. Father, I pray for guidance and wisdom. I pray that the message you want to be delivered today be delivered. And I pray that your word and the example of Jesus' life continues to be extended beyond these doors and beyond our human boundaries. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, if you're new here with us, or just to have a recap, uh, this summer we have been studying through the book of Acts. And I've really enjoyed the way we've been walking through it together. Um, Each week with each text... We've been thinking of questions we might ask the believers in Acts and then imagining some of the things that Acts would be asking of us. And it's really been a rich experience and very convicting for me personally, um, and it has helped to grow and stretch my imagination and my critical thinking. Um, So this morning we're in Acts 12, and I'll be reading our story from the message. That's when King Herod got it into his head to go after some of the church members. He murdered James, John's brother. When he saw how much it raised his popularity ratings with the Jews, he arrested Peter. All this during Passover week, mind you. Just a quick side note. Imagine how Peter and the church must have been feeling during this time, during Passover week. All of the feelings that are, that are coming up during this time and all the remembering and the pain and how perfectly planned it was on, on Herod's part to be carrying all this out during, during Passover week. I just think that it had the potential to be extremely spirit-crushing. It just came into my head. So he arrested Peter and had him thrown in jail, putting four squads of four soldiers each to guard him. He was planning a public lynching after Passover. 
All the time that Peter was under heavy guard in the jailhouse, the church prayed for him most strenuously. Then came the time for Herod to bring him out for the kill. That night, even though shackled to two soldiers, one on either side, Peter slept like a baby. And there were guards at the door keeping their eyes on the place. Herod was not taking it, was taking no chances. Suddenly there was an angel at his side and light flooding the room. The angel shook Peter and got him up. Hurry. The handcuffs fell off his wrists. The angel said, get dressed, put on your shoes. Peter did it. Then grab your coat and let's get out of here. Peter followed him, but didn't believe it was really an angel. He thought he was dreaming. Past the first guard and then the second, they came to the iron gate that led into the city. It swung open before them on its own, and they were out on the street, free as a breeze. At the first intersection, the angel left him, going his own way. That's when Peter realized it was no dream. I can't believe it. This really happened. The master sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's vicious little production and the spectacle the Jewish mob was looking forward to. Still shaking his head, amazed, he went to Mary's house, the Mary who was John Mark's mother. The house was packed with praying friends. When he knocked on the door to the courtyard, a young woman named Rhoda came to see who it was. But when she recognized his voice, Peter's voice, she was so excited and eager to tell everyone Peter was there that she forgot to open the door and left him standing in the street. But they wouldn't believe her, dismissing her, dismissing her report. You're crazy, they said. She stuck by her story, insisting. They still wouldn't believe her and said, it must be his angel. All this time, poor Peter was standing out in the street, knocking away. Finally, they opened up and saw him and went wild. Peter put his hands up and calmed them down. He described how the master had gotten him out of jail, then said, tell James and the brothers what's happened. He left them and went off to another place. At daybreak, the jail was in an uproar. Where was Peter? What's happened to Peter? When Herod sent for him and they could neither produce him nor explain why not, he ordered their execution. Off with their heads. Fed up with Judea and Jews, he went for a vacation to Caesarea. But things went from bad to worse for Herod. Now people from Tyre and Sidon put him on the warpath, but they got Blastus, King Herod's right-hand man, to put in a good word for them and got a delegation together to iron things out. Because they were dependent on Judea for food supplies, they couldn't afford to let this go on too long. On the day set for their meeting, Herod, robed in pomposity, took his place on the throne and regaled them with a lot of hot air. The people played their part to the hilt and shouted flatteries. The voice of God, the voice of God. That was the last straw. God had had enough of Herod's arrogance and sent an angel to strike him down. Herod had given God no credit for anything. Down he went. Rotten to the core, a maggoty old man, if there ever was one, he died. Meanwhile, the ministry of God's word grew by leaps and bounds. 
Barnabas and Saul, once they had delivered the relief offering to the church in Jerusalem, went back to Antioch. This time they took John with them, the one they call Mark. It's a lot of text. And there's a lot in it. And I want us to take a look at a couple of faith stories. You may, you may be familiar with the verse in Matthew 7, Knock and the door shall be opened unto you. Well, in Peter's case, it's more of a knock and the door shall remain closed until someone believes it's actually you, right? <laughs> so I get a really comical image in my head of Peter knocking, 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 while a whole story is unfolding inside, and he's still knocking. So let's put ourselves in Peter's shoes for a minute. His faith and his proclamation of his faith has landed him in jail with a death sentence just after his friend has been put to death. But then it was his faith that he kept that allowed him, in my mind, that allowed him to sleep so soundly while bound by chains, heavily guarded, and with the plan being for him to die the next day. I do not think that I could have even closed my eyes, let alone fall asleep to a point where I had to be struck, hit, shaken to wake up. So he's woken by an angel. He thinks he's dreaming, but he follows everything the angel says. And then he realizes, and he believes that he is truly free, and immediately goes straight to his fellow believers, only to be left standing outside, knocking, waiting. And when I read this passage over and over, another story and another person that I was constantly drawn to was Rhoda. In several translations, she's referred to as a servant girl. So in this text, in this um, translation, she's a young woman. And, but she's also referred to as a servant girl. So here she was. Here's a knock at the door. She's going to the door to open it, to answer it, as it's likely that it was in her job description to do so, right? She hears Peter's voice and immediately runs, runs to tell everyone else without opening the door. Yes, this is a humorous image, which when I saw that one, I was like, well, that's perfect. She's running, going to tell everyone. Peter's out there waiting. It's humorous, but what an act of pure faith. That's what I saw. When I read that, it was just this image of just faith. She just acted on her faith and without a doubt knew, knew it to be true. It was more than a, excuse me, Mary, Peter's at the door for you. It was, everyone, it's Peter. He's alive. He's not dead. He's free. He's here. He's right outside. So you have a servant girl who knows Peter's voice without a doubt in her mind and also knows without a doubt in her mind that it's an answer to their prayers. So she breaks the social, cultural barriers. She puts herself equal with all the other believers, as she should be, and she stands firm in her faith, 
that, is, that it is indeed Peter. And she does not back down when they try to dismiss her, saying that she's crazy or that it must be his angel, which says something about where their heads were, were for me, that it was a common Jewish cultural belief at the time that everyone had a guardian angel and that the, those guardian angels would take on the likeness and the voice of their guardies, if you will. Um, and so it only made me assume, or it made me think that they assumed he was already dead. Like, of course, no, 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 it can't be Peter. He's dead. He's already dead. He got arrested. He's dead. So that just, that really got me. So now I want to take us back to verse 5. To the example that is laid out for us by the early church, the early believers. Verse 5 says, All the time that Peter was under heavy guard in the jailhouse, the church prayed for him most strenuously. In the New English translation, it says, but those in the church were earnestly praying to God for him. The New American Standard Bible says, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. There's a a word in this verse in Greek, ektenos, which is an adverb meaning earnestly, strenuously, fervently. It's derived from a verb meaning to stretch out the hand, which is the image that we can get from that is extremely powerful. I mean, you've seen people pray like that. I don't always pray like that. But I have seen this reaching and this posture of just this, this image right here. And I think the energy in the room where they gathered would have been palpable. I'm a, I'm a feeler, personally. So I, I could have walked into that room and felt the tension and the fear and the desperation and the doubt. Just would have been a lot. So what can we interpret from this? What is this asking of us? As I mentioned earlier, I've really been challenged in the way we've been going through Acts together this summer in that each text we're asking questions to the church in Acts, and then we are imagining questions that they might be asking of us. And several of them make it into the learning guide for further discussion throughout our weeks. And some don't, but there are so many questions that float around. Um, And if you don't have the learning guide, you can get it on our website. It's really an awesome thing that you can have throughout the week to just go deeper into the message. But I have a few more up here that I want us to think about this morning.
I want us to imagine the early church asking us as a body, not asking you individually, asking us as a body, collectively, as a unit. What our response would be when we see or experience tragedy or injustice? What is our response as a body of believers when others feel hurt by us? There are plenty of people that I know of who would say that their response would be to act, to do something. How many people in here would, would that be your first response? Like, what can I do? I need to act. I need to do something. You don't have to raise your hands. You can just nod. And actions take on so many different forms. But the response that we see from the early church here is the act of gathering together to pray. So, do we really believe that there is power in gathering and praying together? Another thing I want to think about is how many of us have asked someone if there's anything that we can do, if there's anything that they need, and the answer we get is... You can pray for me. You need to pray for this. I need you to pray for this, etc. And I want to. I want you to think in your own mind. How often is your first off-the-cuff response to be, "Okay, but what else?" Okay, yeah, okay. I'll pray, but what else? That's not almost as if praying doesn't feel like enough. I know that personally. I have thought that. When someone says, you can pray for me, I'm like, okay, I'll, yes, of course, but what's the, a thing that I can do? Well, that is a thing. I believe we are called to pray for specific things, and I believe we are called to pray for the bigger plan and the common good. And there is something to be said about getting outside ourselves and showing up to pray for something greater than we are. And it is extremely important. So I challenge us as a body to act in prayer. However you pray, just pray. I've heard people say, um, just an observation, I've heard people say, oh, I'm not a good prayer. This person, they are an excellent prayer. You're going to want them to pray for you. Which makes me, just in my head, the thoughts go, according to whom? Compared to whom are you not a good prayer? And... I remember the first few times that we started praying with my little girl, and she's three and a half now, and she asked me the same question several nights in a row, and I would usually pray first because she would, you know, we'd start praying, and she'd say, you you pray first, you pray first. So I'd pray, and then I'd say, okay, you know, now it's your turn. And she she would always say those few nights, um, so mommy, how do we pray again? We just we just start talking. 
And it, and it made me smile, and it gave me this, like, feeling in my heart. Just, we've all been there, right? Like, I've been there. I'm like, I feel you, sister. <laughs> like, how do we pray again? What am I supposed to say? <laughs> What's the right way to do it? What's the recipe? But I believe that the point in all of it is the response and action and the act of gathering to pray. And that's powerful. So I want to invite the worship team back up to lead us through this time of reflection and communion. And I'd like us to just show up We have a table here that is open to anyone who is seeking Jesus. We don't dismiss by rows. You come as you are, come as you're ready. And something we've also been practicing this summer is gathering close. So once you've received the bread and the cup, stay in the front several rows And stay close, and we'll take the elements together as a body, as a unit. And while while we're all here and close and gathering, I want us to practice prayer. Practice praying. Whether that is out loud whether it's with one or two people, whether it's quietly, it doesn't matter. There's no right way. You just do it. You just act. Thank you so much for being here this morning.